This is episode 64 of The Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me. You're probably in the goal-setting mode for 2016, or maybe you're listening to this later and you're just wanting to set great goals. Turns out that making great goals is often a matter of asking the right questions. Jeffrey Davis and I think a particularly good question is, what will you stand for this year? And that's what we're jamming about today on this episode. Note, this isn't about fighting against something, but rather standing up and standing for something. You are writing a story, so you may as well think about what you want to be included in that story. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. I'm excited to have Jeffrey back on with me today. Jeffrey joined me for episode seven about how not to be an idea thief. Um, and if you haven't listened to that show, it was largely coming from the fact that um, we had some um, concerns, let's put it as concerns, about the degree to which ideas in the space that we are in can get their own legs and run away from you, right? And um, granted, we can't, the, the point, one of the points of that show was you can't really influence too much of how that happens, but you can not be an idea thief yourself, right? You can have some integrity in the work that you're creating and standing up for. Um, Jeffrey and I, we do a lot of running. We, we have the Aligned Thought Leader event that we're doing um, in March. Um, we're on each other's blogs back and forth. One of my favorite people's. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me again today. Oh, it's my honor. I always love the opportunity to jam with you. All right. And, you know, we're jamming today about um, what to do for the upcoming year. So we're recording this late December. You'll be listening to this in mid-January. And as creative people, we have this um, drive to always create something new or um, to hone or tweak. Like we can't let things be. I was, I was thinking of, um, Jeffrey, I was thinking of a post Seth Godin wrote a couple of weeks ago about um, the fact that creativity comes from when people feel a problem. Like if there's no problem, there's no creativity, right? That's and, true. Yeah. yeah um, I was thinking like, oh, that's why I can't write a bunch of musical songs because it's really hard to be Jack Johnson and write happy songs, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> But I don't want Angela to leave me and I don't want to lose my dog and, you know, things like that. <laughs> so anyway. You need a dose of like country blues to, right. Know, right? Um, but, you know, we we're thinking about what we, what, um, what conversations we want to host for the upcoming year, Jeffrey and I. Um, and we're really both thinking about what um, we want to help people stand for in their work. And, the thing about the thing about it is, as creative people, um, we're always creating something. And what am I going to say? We have this tendency to start a bunch of things and not finish them. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And two, my experience of my listeners and Jeffrey's patch of the planet as well is that we have these varied backgrounds, you know, um, Jeffrey studied German philosophy of all, of all things. Right. Um, and now he's a, a book and brand strategist. Um, I've got a varied background and the tension I think is what do we do with all of this stuff? Right. And none of it fits together. 
Let's start there. None of this fits together. What do we do? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. You covered some good territory in that opening. And uh, so, so maybe I can uh, connect some dots here too in response. So one is like, yeah, we are, I think, <clears throat> I think creativity is our biological and even spiritual impulse to make things new, make things better, make things different, make things useful. I just think as mammals, this is one thing that we human beings do. And I, I just think as spiritual beings, this is something that we, that we have to do. And we do it in so many different ways. And one way that we're creative is, um, is we do connect dots. We find patterns. And um, maybe it's with the benefit of having gray hair. And by that, I mean, I have enough years in uh, being post 18 years old that I can look back and see the patterns of the forest I've lived and seen where German philosophy and philosophical hermeneutics and poetics and um, story architecture and uh, psychology and all this stuff actually does. I was like, oh yeah, that was actually quite useful. <laughs> that has informed who I, not only who I am and it not only informs what I do, but it also informs how I do it, how I, how I do show up in the world. And um, I think that's been true for a lot of people um, I've worked with and talked with too, is we then go back and we, and we say, oh gosh, if I just stayed with one thing for the past 20 or 30 years, then I would be, you know, masterful of that when that's not really the case we can go back and start to find those patterns in our heritage and see what we want to bring forward um in our you know in our pursuit of a creative life absolutely and what i want to pause here is i had a great um, conversation with alexia on um, a recent podcast too is i think where we get stuck with this what stories do we weave in and what stories do we leave out is we we tend to have um, this idea or this tension around all the stories need to be present, right? Yeah. They have to show up all the way. Yeah. Or only the really marketable ones. Yeah. Or the ones that people would really care about are part of the story. So if I'm talking to you, Jeffrey, I don't talk, I don't talk to you about my fascination about tabletop games, right? It's not <laughs> right. relevant. I only recently found out about that about you too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. No one cares, right? You don't care about <laughs> However, like it frames part of the world. And I'm not trying to say everywhere I go, I should talk about my love of tabletop, but that's the tension. It's like, there are all these weird things and there's all these things that nobody will care about, but I'm not talking about them. So I've got to figure out which pieces to show people. So on and so forth, you know? It's so true. Yeah. You know, um, in being a writer and a kind of student of story for so long, I think that so much of story in however you're shaping it and telling it is as much about omission as it is about inclusion. So what you omit, if you're a portrait artist, like which details are you going to foreground and highlight? Which are you going to diminish, right? In order to get the essence and character. And so similarly, to try to get the essence and character of the current story that we are owning in our life, I, you know, it behooves us not to be all-inclusive. And I, this comes up a lot with, with our clients because they do have such varied backgrounds. And um, 
you know, to be authentic doesn't mean you have to put, as you say, everything out there. That's profoundly confusing to people. And um, we actually can do people justice by, uh, by being selective. That doesn't mean you're being dishonest. It just means you're being selective in how you're presenting yourself and presenting your story. Um, you know, what's funny is that when I just kind of reviewed my own sort of personal German philosophy, philosophical hermeneutics, poetics, I completely left out like this big second act in my life, which was yoga philosophy and be, being deeply steeped in yoga practice. and philosophy. Like that's a whole part of still who I am. But that's not something that I always deliberately now foreground in who I am and what I'm about. My practices here, my little girls actually practice with me every day. It's part of who I am, but it's not overtly part of my story. And people have called me on that before. Like, why, why aren't you teaching yoga? Why aren't you doing this? And that's just not where my public story is all of the time, even though I can speak that language inside and out. Um, the other, so then the other piece you said was, you know, was really wise too that I hear a lot is, oh, so now I just have to put the parts forward that are marketable. Well, that's, that's disingenuous too. And I think that's where people see the either or incorrectly. It's not putting forward what's quote marketable. It's putting forward again, I think, what you most want to own going forward and how do you want to select your story and shape your story. It doesn't mean it's fixed. It's never fixed, but you're still owning what you're putting forward. Well, I think it is fixed in the sense that if you're, if you're telling a story, right, you're telling a story for certain points, whether it's to entertain, whether it's to educate, whether it's to inspire, story serves a purpose, mm -hmm. right? And as an architect of that story, you do fix the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the sense of if I'm, trying you, if I'm trying to tell an inspirational story, I might tell from the stories from this repertoire that I know tap into emotional cores, that I know do that. Because my point is to inspire. If I'm get, telling a story to educate, I might not go through that same rapport of, you know, rah-rah stories or whatever that might be. I might tell the more substantive ones because my point is to educate, right? And I think where we get into trouble is um, obviously simplistic thinking, right? A lot of times when we're telling a story, we're doing at least one of those three, or we're doing multiples of those aims at the same time, and we don't know what that quotient is, right? So if you want to just look at the three, educate, inspire, and entertain, right? There are people who tell brilliantly funny stories that are entertaining that are also inspirational. They're also educational, right? And it's really pulling those pieces of your story, of your background, of the uh, data that you see in the world to pull that narc. So we are telling that story, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's no problem with that because um, this, this, this is a Charlie thing. You might not agree with me on this one, Jeffrey. When you have someone's attention, especially for a concerted, like if they paid you money, I, I definitely put a high value on the attention that they give me because they give you money and their attention. It is your responsibility to curate that experience and to use that time and intentionally wisely. And I think not going in there with a fixed story does an injustice to you 
and what you're trying to convey, but also to your listener. Yeah, no, I completely, I just wanted to let you just finish that beautiful riff uh, before I um, self-corrected what I meant by fixed. So what I, what I didn't mean by fixed is how you're using it, which I complete agreement, which is that um, you shape it, you intend it, you craft the story. What I meant by fixed is that it's not complete in terms of, let's say, uh, maybe your larger brand story or larger business story that you're living out in a certain year. I mean that <clears throat> once you put it out there, it's always evolving and unfolding and changing. But to your point, I could not agree more. And I've always felt this way, whether I was in the classroom or at a conference or on a stage or in writing, that it is my responsibility in part to shape that experience. And uh, so I, I often describe um, to, to people I work with of stories as um, serving at least two functions. Um, stories can be windows. And so you can shape your personal story. You can shape any story as like, oh, this is a portal to possibility. This is a portal to another world, another what could be. But stories also can be windows. I'm sorry, they, they can also be mirrors. And so this, um, this metaphor kind of came to me actually a few years ago when I was, um, when I was actually working with Michael Port down in the city and, and I could not figure out like how to get this deeply personal story of mine on the stage. And it was something I saw him do coaching somebody else. I was like, Oh, I can shape this deeply personal story because it's going to be a mirror for other people in the audience to see part of themselves. And so that gives you a definite filter. So, yeah, I think we're in complete harmony in there. We both respect craft. We both respect um, um, experience architecture and, and being really responsible in that regard, too. Yeah. So, so if I could just riff a little bit more on there, too. Because um, we're talking about creativity. We often hear um, this word loosely bandied about um, that I don't think we give any concrete definition to, which is authenticity. And so we often hear, I mean, it's just everywhere. It was in the subtitle of my book, The Journey from the Center to the Page, but I meant it in a different way. Um, so we'll often hear, well, if you're going to be authentic and you're going to speak, will you just stand up and say whatever you're feeling, however you're feeling it? And, um, and I Maybe in some circumstances, that's true if it's like spontaneously asked to speak, you know, from your heart and so forth. But again, right, if there's an audience there, there are people there who've come to hear what you have to say. I really, I, I think it's not only a responsibility, it's just a great opportunity to practice your craft and to be creative and see what can happen between you and your craft and just what's happening in the moment of that that live audience engagement. I think that's true for a lot of creativity. It's like to like just own whatever facet of the craft uh, uh, is available to you and then, and then, you know, see what happens. Yeah. The authenticity thing. I mean, again, there's so much that goes through our experience moment to moment that we don't share with people. Right. Um, 
if, were I not to bring it up, Jeffrey wouldn't be sharing, you know, his spider bite with you. Like he's got a painful <laughs> spider bite. That's it's, it's That's crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> but I've got spider powers now, <laughs> but we're still not sharing chicken wings. I'm telling you, you right. keep those sticky fingers to yourself. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there's certain ways that I'm feeling in my body that we don't share, but my not sharing that and his not sharing that doesn't make us any less authentic. It's just, again, curating. And my point about fixing earlier was, because this has come up for some people. It's like, you know, it seems like we're crafting this story to do a certain thing and it doesn't feel organic as it were, right? It doesn't feel organic. And I'm like, it's not organic, right? <laughs> right? Um, this is not like an Instagram relapse of your last 20 years. That's not what we're, what we're doing here, right? No, if we're telling a story, we're automatically going to be arch- like you know, being an architect, we're automatically going to be curating certain things in there. So the question is not whether we're being an architect or a curator, it's what are we building? What are we curating? We can't get away from that. You know, we can't get away, especially because of the way we're socialized, because of the way our language works. We are moment to moment when we're sharing with other people, sculpting an experience. Yeah. Um, sometimes we just do it intentionally. Other times we don't. And if you're already in the intentional game, it might as well do it well, you know? It's so true. I just think this operates on so many levels of um, just assuming agency for your your life, your quest, your story. Um, <clears throat> and again, I yeah, I just think that um, in shaping shaping a a story, a personal story, or shaping the larger story that you that you're about is it has been for me and for so many people I've worked with just and actually an exciting creative endeavor. And when something is truly a creative endeavor, there's a lot that's unknown that goes into that shaping. So this goes back a little bit to um, what you said that many people will resist um, uh, assuming agency or being selective because, oh, is this just to be marketable and so forth? Um, Let me, let me kind of hyperlink there for a moment. I think marketing approaches are useful in some ways, but I found that many strictly marketing approaches to, to brand stories and the businesses and so forth are, are limited in certain ways. They're, they're usually focused on the short, short gain and you know, what's going to work for this particular item, this particular product, this particular launch. There's not a long story view to a lot of marketing approaches. So many people, I think, both in PF world, productive flourishing world, and tracking wonder world, um, are driven. They're either driven by creative endeavors because they just have that biological, spiritual urge. They know it's part of who they are. They have to make things and make a difference, make meaning. Um, some of them are spiritually driven to make a difference in other people's lives and um, live for the greater good. Um, And, and some are, you know, they're driven by meaning. And so then if you come along and say, well, you actually need to shape your story. Suddenly they're thinking marketing, um, manipulative, and that's not the case. And when you approach story shaping for your life, for your larger um, personality, for your thought leadership, it becomes a real creative endeavor that really requires profound self-knowledge. It requires profound empathy and emotional intelligence that I have seen 
challenge the most quote compassionate social entrepreneurs are like, whoa, I really have to empathize, right? And then have fun actually learning some things about story that I think almost all of us really want to learn. I think, you know, if any anyone in our audience listening is really moved by a film or by a book they read or an essay they read, like I, I read a short story in the middle of the night the other night because I couldn't get to sleep. It's like an 80-page short story. And then the next night I read this incredible essay um, that told this personal story. Both of them have just like stuck with me for so long. And I'm like, God, I love that. I love that about story. But they really had to take time with their craft and learn their craft. Well, that, like, when I admire that and other people, I want to learn to do that myself. And I think that's true of people in both productive flourishing world and tracking wonderland. Like they really get excited about story and they want to, they want to learn that too. And they want to do it not to be manipulative, but to, you know, to elevate people. Yeah. I don't think it's just our audiences though. I mean, if you look at the lines of people lined up for star Wars right now, right. Or that were lined up for star Wars and how well that did, right. We were craving a re-entry into that story. Not the first three, not the, not, not the prequel, right. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to join. Definitely not, definitely not the prequel. Definitely not those. And there are going to be some people to need them. Like, I really like the prequel. I yeah, I, I, yeah. 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 But anyways, um, we wanted to re-enter that story and, you know, and it's not just around like literature and movies, like a song. I'll, I'll just say one song, cats in the cradle. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's yeah. such rich with song where like, so people will hear that and they will literally cry and make you want to call your dad and all things. Yeah, like that, yeah. right? um, we are so hardwired for really well-crafted stories. Right. Uh, we, we earn, we yearn for that. Right. Yeah. Um, can I, can I pause for a moment? Please because do, yeah. I actually did take uh, my six year old to go see the force awakens and uh, it was great. And she probably didn't get, like most of it, even though she had a ton of wonderful questions afterwards. But um, so I was like, God, I love that. And I couldn't tell Hillary, my wife, about it because I was like, I can't tell you about it because the backstory is everything. Um, I was like, yeah, you know what the prequels lacked were really good backstory. The prequels weren't stories in my view. They were just a series of things that happened and they kind of threw some characters in there and so forth. There was no really moving story that drew your heart's yearning. You know, so The Force Awakens, it's like, yeah, I want to belong or yeah, I want to do good or yeah, I want to break out of my social circumstances. Like all of these yearnings are embedded in those characters in The Force Awakens. And I won't spoil anything for people, but it is the backstory that makes that so incredibly satisfying uh, as, as a, as a movie, as a whole experience. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the at four five and six, um, a major thread in all of them that were lacking in one, two and three was about hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's funny because it begins you know, like with a new hope. Right. That's right. Um, and so there, there's that that's, that, that was really present. And there's other storytelling and other cinema, you know, cinema things that, that were in the first, in the last, that were not in the first. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you in the sense of um, we didn't get that sense of, like, hope from episode one, right? Yeah, we didn't get that yeah. sense of 
like there's this evil, but there's hope and there's like, it was fun and adventure and all those types of things, but it wasn't that deep human connection to, to a core value that I think um, in the new movie they've done, a, they've gone back to the original, like what was this about? Right. Yeah, um, that's so true. Yeah. What was this about? So that's definitely something that um, excites me. And I think excites you too. Is like, yeah, what is that bigger value or that bigger ideal a theme we'd call it like in, in literature. It's really this larger ideal that I've been sitting with and writing about too. It's like, well, what are our, our ideals that are driving us? What's the ideal that the story you're living and presenting and shaping is, is about? And um, it's just like another little hyperlink in this conversation about stories and Star Wars and hope and so forth. Um, the work of Paul Zak is really really interesting um, as he's looked at the neuroscience of the story arc, right? And when I show people at my events this video of, of what he does, it's just like, wow, they're like blown away. Like, oh my gosh, we really are wired for story. And what, what his studies consistently show are a couple of things is that one, when stories have tension, right, um, we get a stress response. Mm-hmm. And then when that's, we get a stress response, but we also get an empathy response. And then we get a release because sometimes that tension's re released and relief, sometimes it's not. But that's what actually that combination of the stress response plus empathy leads to greater generosity in their studies. Like This is like, we're wired for stories for the greater good. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it behooves all of us, frankly, I think, uh, or many of us at least to learn how to craft those kinds of stories, not to be, not to manipulate, but to elevate each other. So when that idea, so yeah, going back to this idea of an ideal that your story is about, it can't be artificial. It can't be sort of artificially imposed. I found, and this goes right back to your observation about how, you know, after 10, 20, 30 years beyond 18, we've done so many different things. Our ideal, I think, emerges out of some of those patterns of our decisions, out of where we've been paying attention for the past 20, 30 years. How when we look back on our life, what has been important to us and how has that shown up in our decisions, our actions, and what we've been making in the world? And I found that one from large companies actually thrive when the founder stays true best he or she may to those ideals that are just part of his or her DNA. And it, it doesn't trickle down. It just infuses rather the culture and the community. So I see it with big companies that have been tracking. I see it with small businesses. I see it with individuals. Um, and I think that's because, again, like what we're talking about, we are, we are driven, like the good in us is driven by, by that ideal. And that ideal does, um, it does give us the hope that things can be better, new, different, which goes right back to what the creative impulse is all about. Absolutely. And, you know, just to throw out some companies, um, Apple is the easiest one because, you know, when Steve Jobs passed, one of the things that people questioned was, are they going to be able to stick to the core, right? Yeah. Forgetting that Steve brought another core back to the company in, in 98 and so, right? But let's, let's not 
forget that, but Jeff Bezos, right? Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos and the way that man thinks infuses so much of what Amazon, Amazon does. Um, Brandon, oh, I can't remember that. I always forget, Brandon Page from Google, right? Mm-hmm. The way they think so infuses that company. Yeah. Sam Walton and Walmart, so infused all of those companies, right? That, that it's just amazing. And it's not just for the big companies, it's small companies. And, yeah. you know, as a, as a business mechanic like I am, Part of the problem is, is that as in really small companies, um, there's not enough room for other, um, there's, there's not enough room for things that aren't the founder to grow within a small company. And so sometimes that becomes a problem when the founder and that singular vision of what this is prevents the company from growing. Right? Yeah. It's an issue, right? That's what, that's why the story's not fixed. And yeah. what I was saying, like the story yeah. does evolve and change. So yeah, I'll give a couple of other, um, maybe lesser known examples too of ideal driven companies. So I think when, uh, Joe Gebbia and his partner, uh, started Airbnb, um, they didn't start necessarily with an ideal except like to help people. It was really, and, and it just sort of grew, but frankly, it was really in 2014 when they owned their story and really recognized, like they learned actually what their story was in tandem with what they cared about, which is belonging anywhere. And when they really owned that and then like laid out like the whole brand story and the new um, Belo's Belo logo for belong and so forth, that their company just exploded really. And I, um, and uh, let's see, Method House Cleaning is another one uh, uh, started by two, uh, two young guys who were just frustrated with um, toxic house cleaning that they you know, were using when they were uh, in their early 20s. And they started this whole line of, of you know, really organic house cleaning products. They both have a wicked, wicked sense of humor. Um, and they're both really out to do good in the world and they get really driven. They say, you know, it just is so exciting to wake up each morning when you're actually seeing that you're making a difference in other people's lives. They really play out what I would call sort of a justice story because they're, they're against dirty (laughs) in all, all senses of the word. Um, and then one, maybe one more, um, is even American giant, this apparel company that really changed their story to really be about um, uniquely American products. Now, I won't go too much into this, but um, we're talking about brand stories at the heart of it. You have to do or make something really well. The story can't hide a poor cup of coffee if, if you've got a cafe <laughs> or a coffee shop. So, you know, you keep focusing on the craft. This goes back to the craft of what you're doing and what you're making. You keep focusing on that work and you do it really well. Then the story and the larger ideal emerge from that. So I just wanted to reiterate that, you know, the ideal has to emerge organically from what you do and what you make. It can't be tacked on superficially. I hope that was helpful to your audience. Yeah. Well, a little nuance there. You made me think of Folgers coffee, right? 
what's Folgers brand story? You know, when you really think about it, yeah. and it's different than Starbucks. It's different yeah. than Bulletproof, right? Yeah. Um, Folgers is the coffee for everybody. The best part of waking up is Folgers. It's the best part of waking up. It's like that great home morning, right? It's, it's that home morning experience. experience, right? Yeah. And so, do they have to make the best coffee in the world for that? <laughs> That's good right? No, they got to afford and get everywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so. Um, this is a quick aside, and this is this is one. Anyways, I'll, I'll say it this way: um, I started drinking coffee late in my life. Like I think I was around twenty. I don't remember the dates. Anyways, but I went into Walmart because I still lived in the South, right? And I walked into the coffee aisle, and I saw like hundreds of those cans of Folgers and all the other brands, and I thought, that's a lot of friggin' coffee. <laughs> if you multiply this store times all the other Walmarts, times all the, like, where all these coffees come from? But anyways, um, this is a side, like, you know, um, what's great about, um, about thinking about stories and where things fit in the world is that you get both the macroscopic story of like, where does all this coffee come from? Right. Um, but you can also get this narrower story of where does my coffee fit into things? Why yeah. do people choose my coffee? And I'm not talking about coffee, obviously. I'm talking about stories, and they're all over the place. Completely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, to, further, to further the story uh, and coffee thing is um, what led me to be thinking about coffee, too, in the past several months is I've noticed in this p- kind of post-Starbucks era is a number of independent local coffee shops have sprouted up everywhere, not just here in the Hudson Valley, but when I'm traveling around the U S I'm like, wow, there's another like sort of niche coffee focused, you know, shop or restaurant and so forth. And they each though have a special sort of artisanal pride in the way that their coffee's made and where it's sourced. And I walk into these places and frankly, I love it when the person who's serving me is telling me about the special process in a non-obnoxious way or is telling me where the coffee comes from and so forth. So that they, their part of their culture is like, they tell me the story. Well, that's great because then I become an ambassador for them and I'm sharing their story. The other thing is recently I noticed even on this package of coffee, I don't buy a lot of coffee, um, but I do go out and get a good Americano uh, frequently. But the last package of coffee I bought, I can't even, I should remember the name since I want to champion their story. Um, I looked on the label and the, the whole brown bag of coffee actually had the origin story of like, why did these two guys in New England suddenly get the idea to do fair trade coffee? And it was a comic strip telling the whole origin story and then t- telling the whole benefits of the story. I was like, wow, that is a great way to tell the story that you're living and tell the story that your, your product's living. So we've been focusing a lot on brands and stories and businesses, right? Mm -hmm. In the business context. And the reason we've been highlighting that is because businesses um, have a manifest reason to cultivate that brand and that story to clear point because they want you to buy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's part of what what businesses do. They sell you. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been using that as a lens window to use Jeffrey's um, Jeffrey's language here. Um, Maybe a mirror too, right? To think about your own story too, because whether you're a business person or you're a thought leader or solopreneur, whatever you label yourself or a business leader, that's fine too, right? Or whether, you know, you're a creative person that's working in a company or you're a student. Like the point is we want you to think about 
your core story. Your, and if brand doesn't sit well with you because it sounds too marketing and businessy, think about that story. And, you know, if story is too much, think about your legacy. What do you want to be known for? When people say Jeffrey or they say Susan or they say Charlie, what is that ideal? And let's, let's riff there a little bit. I wanted to bring that home because what I've experienced, Jeffrey, is we try to make those stories, those legacies, those brands too complicated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and we'll have these long flowery, like we love the four letter syllable or the four syllable words, so on and so forth. Right. When a lot of times, like what we mentioned earlier, what was Star Wars four, five and six about hope? Right. It endures because of its simplicity. Um, have you experienced that, too? Like just oh, yeah. coming to that that core theme, maybe two, three, three, hope and love or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, let me circle back around to that and just say we haven't even defined brand yet. And I would say, and maybe this will help people, it's like your brand is the emotional experience, the total emotional experience that people have with you or your business. And I have a brand at home. And I have to be aware of it. Like, how is my six-year-old experiencing me? Because <laughs> if it's not the way that I want to be remembered 10, 20 years from now, I need to actually own my, my papa brand, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it is, so all of us have a brand. All of us even have a personal brand. We have different personal brands depending on our context. Um, so the brand story is like, how do you more fully play that out in a meaningful way? And, in our times. So I think what's really exciting, if you are a thought leader, what does that mean? It means that you actually have an idea that you think could be valuable to other people and you want to put it out there into the world. And you may want to be associated with that idea. Daniel Goleman. What do you think of when you hear Daniel Goleman? Most of us would think emotional intelligence. Or if we heard emotional intelligence, most of us would think Daniel Goleman if we thought of any human being. Uh, If we hear introvert, Many people will send others to Susan Cain. We've got a Susan Cain equals introvert thing going on right now. <laughs> she's yeah. really owned that. It's not just hers, but she's really owned her part there in that thought leadership. So um, going back to this, yeah, I think if we can simplify the ideal we want to stand for and stand up for to a word or a phrase, this helps us profoundly. As creative people, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, we like to explore everything. A one or two or three word or phrased ideal will just help you filter and say, okay, for this year, I'm going to live out this ideal. And yeah, that doesn't mean I can't do other things or talk about other things or write about other things, but this is the ideal I'm really going to give my attention to because we are what we pay attention to. And I really want to give attention to this ideal. So, yeah, so maybe we could invite everyone to just, like, ask yourself that question. Like, what is the ideal that I want to stand for and stand up for and be known for? Absolutely. This year. year, And, like, just really stay with it. As a guidepost to that question, um, what you might want to do is look retroactively for the last, say, 18 months and say, you know what? 
what have I actually been standing for? Because sometimes you don't know. It emerges, as we mentioned, right? And rather than saying just out like ex nihilo, like right now I'm going to stand for this, like what have you been standing for? And does that need to change? Does it need to be amplified, right? Does it need to be um, clearly stated? Because sometimes we're working on things, but we don't tell other people things, right? So start from where you've been to determine where you want to go forward when it comes to your ideal. Yeah. Let's wrap it up there. I think that's a great place. I think it's a great place to wrap it up. It's been really good jamming again. All right. Thanks so much for joining me, Jeffrey. Again, Jeffrey joined me for episode seven. Um, and so if you like this one, go back and check us out there. And for um, you listening in, again, what ideal do you want to stand for in the upcoming year? And if it's not immediately clear, what have you been standing for? And does that need to be made clear, amplified, or just stated? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.